Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts. So let's select a game and press start. Let's get scratching. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and I have an incredible guest here with me today. He is the host of the progressive video game podcast, No Cartridge, as well as the author of the book, Story Mode, Video Games and the Interplay Between Consoles and Culture. I got Trevor Strunk with me. Trevor, how are you today? Hey, good. I'm uh, happy to be here, Kiefer. I appreciate you having me. Oh, I'm absolutely happy to have you here. Just to introduce yourself to listeners who don't have the pleasure of knowing you, uh, just start with uh, what do you do and what do you like? Uh, so my name's Trevor. Um, I, I record a podcast called No Cartridge, among other things, but that's probably the most interesting thing. It's about video games. I talk with creators and critics and fans and really anyone who wants to come on. I'm surprised we haven't had you on yet. Uh, we have to fix that. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, left-leaning stuff like that. So I, I, you know, I, I like things on that spectrum, but recently I've been getting a little more into games like visual novels. I've been finding them very interesting when I, when I get a chance to sit down and play them. But I would say my, my bread and butter, what I, what I go to when, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, what, play a game right now, uh, it would probably be either uh, Final Fantasy XIV, which I put an embarrassing amount of time into, or some sort of Metroidvania, which um, I always can find my way, uh, find myself lost in. And, uh, you know, other than that, I have, a, I have a, two kids and I, I teach sometimes. So it's a, you know, it's an old person life over here. I am a fan of No Cartridge, and I am also a fan of the book that you wrote. I actually own it. It's on my shelf right now. Oh, thank you. And I sort of wanted to ask you, uh, as someone who's a bit of an academic, a very serious question real quick. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Are video games good? <laughs> oh, thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, you know, people always mess up and ask the wrong question when they say that, and they 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 ask if they're art. The real debate is if they're good. Uh, many people have have chimed in on this. It's like a lot of ink's been spilled. And I'm here to tell you today, this has been peer reviewed and checked and confirmed. Video games are excellent. They're really good. And, God uh, damn, and everyone should play my entire notes now. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. This is, this is what happens when great discoveries are made. We have to be a little uncomfortable. Well, I appreciate you uh, giving an academic analysis to that. That sort of leads into my next question. And it feels a little bit silly to ask this again because of No Cartridge and your book, uh, which speak for themselves. but. What is your relationship like with video games in general? And what would you sort of, to sort of summarize everything, what is like a brief summary of Trevor's gaming life? Okay, yeah. Um, so my relationship with video games is, you know, first and foremost, as someone who likes them, um, that's how, at least how I started playing them. I guess like I'll start with my history of gaming. Like I, I, I played Super Mario Brothers when I was like five at a friend's house, loved it, desperately wanted a Nintendo, got one for Christmas, did not realize at the time my my parents my my dad's a professional actor uh my mom's a nurse uh has has well was she's retired now but um before they split up they did not make a ton of money together they're very friendly now mm-hmm. and they're they're also making a lot more money now uh, i don't think because <laughs> of the divorce i don't think that's the reason why but uh the, their careers are sort of a little more secure but i i say that to say i i didn't really realize how much of a stretch it was to get me a nintendo in like 1991 Mm-hmm. I also didn't realize how close, uh, like how much they were banking on the, oh, this is almost going to be eclipsed by the uh, Super Nintendo in a year <laughs> discount. But it didn't much matter because I was super excited. It's like the one thing I, I really remember from being like six and like getting that and being ultra, ultra excited. 
and I just played that a lot. Uh, I would play whatever games I had. Obviously, it comes with super. Well, not obviously. I guess anymore. Uh, when you got <laughs> God, how long ago? Um, when you got a Nintendo and NES, it came with uh, Duck Hunt and Mario, like in a dual cartridge, basically. So like you could play both games on there, and you got a light gun, uh, so you could you could play Duck Hunt. And so I played a lot of Mario, a lot of Duck Hunt. I wasn't very good at either because I was like a kid, but I I played a lot of them. Um, I got my controllers all sticky by eating breakfast with them. And I would just play like whatever games kind of hop fell in my lap from Christmas or like if I borrowed them from a friend or a cousin or whatever. So I ended up playing a lot of weird games like um, like SNK games like Crystalis, which is like a game that now people know because it's on the, uh, the you know, the Switch NES games, but was like very weird and very obscure at the time. Like I felt like I was the only kid playing it or like, you know, Rescue Rangers again. Like I, mm-hmm. I ended up playing pretty good games, but like it was pure luck. And from there, you know, I just kind of like kept my toe in. I, I had a Sega at my dad's house and like, you know, eventually would get a Super Nintendo and and slowly like would save my money or ask at Christmas or whatever. And just kind of went through the consoles, you know, in 64 and PlayStation. I think PlayStation 2 I, I was the one that I the first one I bought with my own money. I played video games all the time, uh, a lot of JRPGs all through high school. And then I, in college, I just kind of stopped like I would play some sometimes. A friend of mine was really into the old Tenchu Assassins game, so we play those a little bit. I would I brought my PS2 to college, and you know I, I would play like the I think I played like the Ninja Gaiden game when it came out, stuff like that. I didn't really play video games until, and certainly not new ones until like right before I got married in 2009. So like I took a break from maybe like six or seven years from video games. So there's a bunch of games that I just never played. <laughs> uh, that a lot of people have played. I had like a huge layoff, um, and I would play like you know various computer games if i could run them on my crummy laptop but at my um at my uh wedding shower uh my cousin's husband got me an xbox 360 uh which was really cool of him uh and i just you know i started i got some games for that i got to play through oblivion uh and like dead rising and stuff like that those were great you know i was on xbox live i guess it was at the time and you got a free game every month so I played those. That's how I played Dark Souls. And I just slowly got like really into those games. And, uh, you know, walking simulators were big at the time in like 2013. And uh, I started writing about them a little bit. I have a chapter in my dissertation on them uh, that if you are interested at all in that is like basically in a better form on uh, nonsite.org. If you just look at my name in nonsite.org, you'll find it, uh, which is like a peer reviewed journal. But the um, I just started writing and then eventually I decided, well, why don't I record about these a little bit? And that's how I started No Cartridge. And from there, I mean, honestly, it's just been uh, one of the things we talked about before the show or like we, we sort of talked about a little bit was like the the relationship I have with games now that I podcast about them. And it, it's definitely changed. I mean, they're definitely like a professional part of my life now. But I mostly find that I just have to make sure that I'm not enjoying them too much uh, mm-hmm. and, and like just like playing them and then not podcasting about them because I was so happy playing them and didn't want to like ruin the experience. It, it it ends up just being kind of wearing two hats at the same time. I don't think I will ever drop video games at this point. They're a very sort of like grounding thing for me at this point. I appreciate that. But I sort of want to go back a little bit and talk about that sabbatical you took with gaming. I mean, basically every guest that I've had on the show will typically point to like early adulthood as a time where they sort of stepped away from games a little bit. You said that you had about seven years where you were sort of missing out on 
an era of games. Are there games from that era that you have gone back and played and loved? Or alternatively, are there games from that era that you are uh, that you would like to play? Totally. Yeah. So like I, I um, I've gone back actually with the book. I ended up playing a bunch of Metal Gear games that I that I never really played. In fact, like I never really played much of the Metal Gear Solid series. Um, mm-hmm. I knew about it and like knew what I wanted to say about it, but um, that was my experience of actually getting to play them. Um, so I got to get like really excited about Metal Gear Solid Two in <laughs> like twenty twenty, yeah. uh, which which was a cool experience because I had to be like, has everyone heard about this incredible game? Everyone's <laughs> like, yeah, man, like. But like, yeah, it's it's a um, I'd say like the games that I've gone back and played I, Bastion was one of the first ones that uh, I played. And, uh, you know, just basically someone was like, hey, like you've never played Bastion. Like, I really want to get your take on Bastion. I'll, I'll buy you Bastion by the super giant folks. And that was that was really cool. Like, I, I never played that. And that was one that, like, I know really was huge at the time. I would say I came to Gears of War late and and found it like equally embarrassing and fun um so i I think i just got the basic (laughs) basic experience everyone got with that i try to play like the classics but a lot of times i end up feeling like a little underwhelmed like with fable 3 or something like that or fable for that matter where it's like oh god like yeah i guess this had a choice system (laughs) there's so many better ones now (laughs) that's that's a tough that's a tough pill in some ways um I say that, but there's always something new to play and always something new where I'm like, oh God, this is like the best thing I've ever played. I don't know how I missed this. It was like me with Yakuza 0 recently, um, mm. just picking up the Yakuza series and realizing like I've completely missed the boat on this one. This is incredible. So yeah, no, I mean, the answer to your question is there have been some that I've played and really enjoyed and I absolutely just probably just want to play all of the rest of them. I, I think mm. probably any video game at this point, I feel like. I might be missing out on something special in, um, even if it's only a 1% chance, it's seems worth doing. That's a great thing about this podcast is that getting so many people from different ages and generations pitching their game to me, it gives me an opportunity to go back and play games that I have been meaning to play and it motivates yeah. me to play them. Uh, I played the Metal Gear games for the first time last winter, and that was actually the catalyst into me making this podcast because I really wanted to talk to my friend Manu about it in a space where we could just like, do it over voice instead of me just like messaging him over and over in Twitter DMs to give him my thoughts on it. So we talked about uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 for three hours, and then that became <laughs> first episode of the podcast. Yeah. But no, those are incredible games that hold up tremendously well. And to your point, a lot of games from that era do not hold up as well just because of the jank of people figuring out certain things, especially in the transition into 3D space. You talk about Fable, and it almost feels very rudimentary in terms of how choice systems have evolved in the years since and how a lot of it has stayed the same. So they're interesting artifacts, but in terms of revisiting a lot of games, I wouldn't say it's not worth playing those games. Every game is, that is, you know, a stepping stone to something is certainly significant. Yeah. But it there is a charm that is lost on you as you if you miss the boat on something. It's it's true, but I think there's also like the the other interesting thing is there's a charm that's missed if you simply uh like play remakes and stuff like that and ignore the the as you rightly say the kind of jank of older games um i'm like i'm reminded of uh killer seven which i played for the uh for the hardcore gaming 101 podcast and like i had never played killer seven and it is like it is it is wild and it is really fun and uh and just like a totally compelling game and it is really weird like it, it is it is fully janky and strange 
but even stuff that doesn't work right like like i'm thinking you know like the quick time events in, in resident evil 4 one of the things i'm thinking of since like we're not going to have those in the remake i don't know like i don't know if i want to play resident evil 4 without the without the quick time events i certainly don't think people should never play resident evil 4 without quick time events those are like part of that game and a part of the charm of that game and i i do worry we're sanding down some of that in insofar as we understand like a, a good example for me is um stalker um the stalker games which are wonderful and which I prefer playing without any mods, which is like admittedly kind of a weird personal quirk um, without playing stock without mods is a, uh, is a nightmare in some ways. Um, it has like, <laughs> there's a lot of head bobbing that makes people sick. The, the, the aiming is like extremely cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like arbitrary. You could shoot like seven times at someone and it'll be like, yeah, like a, looks like the random number table said you didn't hit them. Jesus. Um, but there's something like, I don't know, there's something about that that just feels right. You know, like it feels like, yeah, like this is how stalker should be like. This is this is the game. Like I, I can feel you almost can feel the intention of the of the designers even more when you play it. And like, I don't know if that's in my head or not, but there is something historically resonant about playing these games as they are, even if it like is disappointing or frustrating or or like, you know, annoying. I think maybe the the rash of remakes might make it um harder to place these things in their own context right it almost feels revisionist to mm-hmm. modify a game in a remake setting at least modding is a voluntary process you can choose how much of a game you want to change based off of community contribution but with a remake that can go a lot of ways there are remakes that certainly give quality of life improvements and then there are remakes that just completely alter the experience to the point where it can practically be a new game. I think of Final Fantasy VII Remake, for example, that is actually just a brand new story uh, using the template of the original Final Fantasy VII story. But then you have Resident Evil 2 Remake, which is functionally the same story told through a modern gaming lens. And that's a competent, good version version of that. I love Resident Evil 2 Remake. But what do you do for the people who just want to play Resident Evil 2? Yeah, and and honestly, like it's it's a it's an issue because you know, game um, preservation is such a such a tricky thing too. like it, it's such a thing like people people are not particularly good at preserving games or no. companies aren't right. And I, I think like it's something where we've come to understand like, OK, the tank controls in Resident Evil don't feel good. Like they don't feel good to modern sensibilities. I get it like they don't. But the game feels like isometric and claustrophobic in a way because of those tank settings and like are those tank controls and like losing them. I mean, I think I agree. Resident Evil uh, 2 Remake is very good and a fun game and like a really, you know, I, I think it's neat, like seeing a graphical update for something like that. But like the issue is like, does it supplant the original? And and I I can't say it does. Whereas with Final Fantasy VII Remake, it just shares space, which is something totally different, right? Like it is, it's its own sort of journey into the subject matter, um, which I right. think is something I hope people approach it more like that in the future. Although I have no idea if they will. <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly Square might have just caught lightning in a bottle, but I, you know, I hope other people give that a try. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a huge fan of the Final Fantasy VII Remake because I didn't expect it to be that when I played it. I mean, I had, fortunately had played the original ahead of right. time. But somebody whose first foray into Final Fantasy VII is that game is going to have a completely different relationship with that game than somebody who has a relationship with the original Final Fantasy VII. And that's its own conversation within that conversation. I'm thinking a lot about this happened yesterday, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, when they announced the 
Silent Hill 2 remake, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a game that's not being developed by the original developers. One that is a fairly controversial developer that has dipped into the types of themes that Silent Hill 2 has done before, but in what some would argue is in a less tasteful way. Mm. And could that be a remake that is almost destructive to the legacy of a game because there's no legal way of playing Silent Hill 2? And there hasn't been technically in nearly 15 years because the releases on the PlayStation 3 were completely different from the original itself. And this is just funny that Silent Hill 2 has had this problem in multiple ways uh, since its original release. Yeah, no. And I think like I think you can point to Demon's Souls as a version of this, too, where like the Demon's Souls remake, like for people, I mean, it was a little more um, polarizing. I think people will not enjoy the Silent Hill 2 remake. It's an almost an impossible position because remaking Silent Hill 2 is just like, okay, look, like these games are as much as you can have like an auteur game such as it is within the system. Like Mm -hmm. these are games that are like very much of their moment of a particular viewpoint. Like I think Ito's understanding of what is scary and what is like upsetting and what is traumatic is so like particular that those games are going to be really hard to develop without the original team and particularly without Ito. I also think like the Demon's Souls remake is closer to, you know, a, a normal remake where like it, it's basically the same. Mm-hmm. But in looking at the characters, right, like looking at the monsters and stuff, I at the risk of sounding like a, a totally like insufferable purist, the the lack, the like the polish they put on them just makes them like way less interesting in a lot of ways. Like the polish they put on that whole game feels less interesting. It just feels like it feels like a veneer put on to the the original that just like makes the charm go away because it just turns it into essentially like a Dark Souls reskin. And I worry sometimes that these games like, you know, we're going to lose these very sort of like textured uh, gaming moments because we are aiming to 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 get like a, a kind of like, I don't know, like continuity of the moment instead of like historical continuity, like Silent Hill to remake has to look a little bit more like I'm sure we'll look a little bit more like Resident Evil to remake and like be more attuned to current horror gaming sensibilities. And that's just going to be disappointing. Right. And I don't think it is a very controversial or pretentious thing to say that the act of remaking something is inherently a commercial act, right? In the sense of like, we are trying to give this game a new audience or try to make money off of an idea or the legacy of a game. Yeah. That can result in most remakes being a more watered-down version of the original versus one that is either responding to the sensibilities of the time or just something that is, I'm trying to find another way of saying this, like you say about the Demon Souls remake, there is a bit of personality that is kind of gone cleaning that game up. It's true. No, I agree. Like, I think I think like that the personality is is a good way of putting it. Where like we're 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 thinking about these games as, you know, especially if you start thinking about them seriously, right? Like as a as a sort of like artistic expression, or even just like if you don't want to go that far, or that those that word has too much baggage for anyone, like as a sort of creative expression, you know, this is this is not a a surprise to say like classic scholars who uh, can look at you know three translations of Beowulf or three translations of the Iliad and see three different works, right? Like this is this is why like you know th- there's not a lot of people who are out there reading like the Tolkien translation of, of Beowulf or the Haney translation like the, the the poets are not the ones that are that are getting the most read. However, like 
Some people like it, some people don't, and and people can have discussions about that. Video games don't really have, or video games criticism doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about remakes as translations yet. But I think ultimately that's what we're getting. And the danger of it is to say, is like the the assertion by the companies that like, this is the new definitive model as opposed to a translation, both because it obscures the original, but also because like the people making the game play it incredibly safe. And it's just like, it's just about like art restoration as opposed to a different, more modern interpretation as, as again, we see with Final Fantasy VII Remake. Right. Something that I just thought of while you were talking about this, framing it in the way of books. You have older books and then translations of books. There's generally copies of something that's annotated or has something in the margins to sort of help people who find work uh, impenetrable. I think, I think it's actually the Jet Set Radio uh, episode that you did. Uh, mm. that I listened to a preparation for this, where you talk about JR and how you recommend mm. it for people approaching that work that is just dialogue to have some sort of cheat sheet to go off of to approach a work better. So I guess my question going off of that would be, are quality of life improvements when you go back to a game where you port a game, like an early 3D game uh, that was used with one stick to a twin stick that has better camera controls or just generally better quality of life improvements to make a game more accessible to people with physical disabilities, are those the gaming equivalent of annotations? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think like in the sense of a game that like if the game is, hmm, I'm trying to think of a way to say this that is satisfying. I think the the best way to say it is just to say it like if the improvements align with the purpose of the game, in, in the case of like accessibility and and uh, sort of refining movement, you know, ultimately my complaints about, you know, the loss of tank controls or whatever, that's that's idiosyncratic. That's like my way of imagining Resident Evil feeling constrained. I don't think tank controls are really like that important to the to like the meaning of that game. Sure. When you when you change something to make it more accessible or more workable to a larger audience, I don't think that that goes against the sort of like intention of the game. Uh, typically, I mean, if you're going to remake Co-op, right? The famous, uh, who made that game? It wasn't, oh, it was the same, hmm, uh, who made it? was the Getting Over It guy, right? Yes, the Getting Over, uh, Bennett Foddy. Bennett Foddy made Co-op. Um, thank you. I forgot, I forgot Getting Over It's name, and every time I think of it, it's Getting Over It by Bennett Foddy. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, Getting Over It's the same way. If you've remade Co-op or remade get over it, Getting Over It with like convenience or like easy saves or like a, a, a tutorial or something that would be against the premise of these games like co-op is just meant to show you how like impossibly weird it is to imagine moving all the limbs of a runner like you're mm -hmm. not supposed to win co-op you, you can if you push at it same with getting over it but like if you do that you're supposed to feel like miserable like <laughs> feeling miserable <laughs> and feeling angry is part of it at that point um, so if you simplify that, I would say like, yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Put it this way. It's like the difference between like having a cheat sheet for JR where it says like, okay, these people are talking on this page. That's one thing. But if I just said, hey, like, I really like this novel, JR. Um, why don't you go read the spark notes for it? That should probably be enough. Or like read the Wikipedia plot summary. I think you'll get a lot out of it. That's not the same. Like <laughs> you're you're going to mm -hmm. lose things. Again, it's going to be sanded down or, or, or misread or misinterpreted. Um, whereas, you know, like, accessibility such as it is like marginalia that that gives us um an approach to to a, a an esoteric text or an es or a difficult game i think that's just like that's a that's a, a way to get more people in position to interpret a piece of uh, art and that's like 
that's necessarily a good thing. I do think it does involve people actually thinking about that though. And I'm not so sure how many remakes are conversant with like the idea of like, okay, so what did the original intend? And that kind of goes back to, you know, giving different developers the keys to a remake versus the original team, which can be an almost impossible task to approach in any case. Uh, So again, I want to sort of move away from this so we can um, touch on some other topics before we get on to the game that you picked out today, which has a different version, come to think of it. But we'll get to that momentarily. I do have a couple more questions before we get to the game itself. It's natural for people's relationship with a medium to change and evolve as they get older. Uh, You host a podcast about video games and you engage with and write academic works on the subject of video games as a medium. How has that affected how you approach video games as a leisure activity? Yeah, I mean, it's affected it a lot. I think one of the one of the re- one of the ways it's affected me a lot, and I've I've been thinking about this a lot recently, is that when I sit down to play a video game, just because I need to like decompress, a lot of times I end up playing the same video games over and over. Um, which mm-hmm. I, admittedly, this is what I used to do with Jack Ryan Radio too, so <laughs> it's not that different, but. If I'm thinking about picking up something new, one of the things that's forefront in my mind is like, okay, so is this something I want to cover for the podcast? Is this something I want to write about? Is this something that I could pitch somewhere? Is this something that like would be interesting for a book or for an article or whatever? And that kind of freezes me when I just want to turn my brain off. So I fire up Final Fantasy XIV or some gotcha game or whatever. And it's like, it frustrates me that I'm playing fewer new games. But I can I can trace it down to just being very busy and wanting to chill out a little bit more and then, you know, immediately being like, yeah, I, I can't really chill out if I'm having to take notes uh, while I do this. And in that way, uh, gaming has become a little bit like reading for me where like it's hard for me not to take notes. And I'm trying I'm trying to avoid that. Like there's I'm, I'm trying to play games a little more casually. I think there's like there's a quality to gaming that requires you not to take notes um, in a certain way. Like if you play a Metroid, if I play a Metroidvania now, I try to not be 100% completist because like when I do that, I end up disliking the game by the end of it, mm-hmm. like, or not disliking it, but liking it far less like blasphemous. I don't know if anyone, if you've played that or anyone listening has, but like, it's a, it's a, it's an enjoyable uh, sort of like 2d Metroidvania. Like a lot of a lot of Catholic imagery and stuff like that, very soulsy. But it's fun. But if you one hundred percent it, all the charm uh, in it will decrease about fifty percent. Um, and <laughs> and you're just gonna be like, okay, God, like get me out of this world. Uh, the same thing happened with me with Axiom Verge. Notably, it did not happen with um, oh God, what's that game called? Why am I forgetting it? The the one with the bug. Um, the the very famous game with the bugs. Yeah, that's a Metroidvania. Um, Hollow Knight. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, my brain was saying "bug night," which I knew was not correct. <laughs> a bug's night. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love a bug's night. I love I love shuffle bugs. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like I, I'm trying to do different things. Like with Yakuza, I tried to play it while just enjoying the side missions instead of like looking it up and being like, "How do I get every single one?" And that helps, but it is difficult to approach games and not just see them as pure leisure and instead see them as like a uh, a jumping off point for uh, for art. I remember um, someone said about Austin Walker, they were like, yeah, like the thing I find so impressive about Austin is that he's always playing something new. And like at the time I was like, oh, that's not so impressive. Like that's whatever. Like you can always play something new, but it is like it's harder when you feel responsible for speaking on a thing 
to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm picking up something new because it always ends up being an intellectual challenge as opposed to a, uh, like a, I'm going to turn my brain off and play like, you know, the new Arkham game or whatever. As a creator myself, my relationship with video games has changed tremendously over the past six months since I've started this podcast because obviously this podcast is a choice. I choose to take on the responsibilities for it. And it's amazing in the sense that I get to try and play new games and I get to revisit old games that I have played and have to take a critical approach to in order to have a conversation with somebody else who has a different relationship with it. That's two different hats I have to put on just within one show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also just the conscious act of when I'm playing a new game, such as I did for this episode, having to always have at least one part of my mind going like, what can I talk about within this? Like searching for something. But I found, especially with this game that has not a lot going on narratively and is meant to be played as sort of intentionally as a leisure experience with a, with a satisfying gameplay loop, uh, an interesting mm-hmm. and engaging one. I had to sort of meet the game at, at that level instead of trying to find something besides what games were made to be, or at least this yeah. specific game was made to be. Yeah, you know, a couple of really interesting things there. Like the one, the idea of playing these games and like finding something different in them. Um, you know, I'm I'm reminded of when I played uh, System Shock Two for the first time, uh, like just like I mean, well past what it, I think I like played it in like 2018 or something. At that point, going into it, thinking about it in relationship with a lot of other games, thinking about it sort of in this longer uh, context, it made it very intimidating to play, but it also like it made it very rewarding as well. And I think like there's something about that difficulty that, you know, makes leisure time a little more complicated, but also mm-hmm. can like can really be rewarding as well. Um, the other thing I, I hadn't really ever thought about this, so I'm, I'm grateful for you saying it. Like it is very true that one of the reasons that, uh, <laughs> that Jack grand radio remains one of my favorite games is because it is like something you can just pick up and play. It's not, it's not particularly intimidating on the level of narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could talk about like its relationship to the police or whatever, but in many ways it is, it is a standard sort of like late nineties, early, you know, pre nine 11, uh, two thousands approach to, you know, authority in a skateboarding game. You're absolutely right. It's, it's about the gameplay loop. And that, that is a very big reason why it probably still resonates for me because it, it triggers that synapse of being like, I just have fun with this. I enjoy this. This is good. Yeah, some games are meant to be fun. Uh, another thing I talked about with Eric on that episode was John Carpenter's approach to playing video games when he uh, had that recent AV Club article. Uh, he does not give a fuck about story in a video game. He's there for the gameplay. Mm. And that speaks to just another thing where it's like video game as a medium is one where you know you go into a work with a different intention depending on who you are as a person, what your relationship with art is, what your relationship with interactive media is, so yeah. on and so forth. John Carpenter's work is something that works on the level of what is an artist trying to say and what is, you know, somebody playing within the visual medium giving to people who just want to watch a movie. It's an interesting and kind of almost obvious insight to a person being like, yeah, I'm just here for the gameplay um, that he want to give the fuck, give a fuck about a story. That is interesting. Yeah. I like, I I especially think it's interesting, like thinking about that distinction when Carpenter has said that he's, you know, he would do a dead space movie, right? Yeah. Which like is a game that is so the 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 narrative and the gameplay is so like intertwined. To say you don't care about a narrative like the narrative in video games is is always sort of a it's an easy cop out to be able to say because like ultimately you totally do care about the narrative because part of the story is the gameplay itself. 
inevitably part of the story is how you play the game. And like, that's something that visual novels have absolutely taught me is that like reading the silver case is like, you know, playing that game is, is a little awkward and strange. There's some, there's some elements to it that are, that are odd, but like the actual playing of it, that it isn't just coming up as text on the screen is so critical to the way it like actually works. And so like that, element of play is the story as well and so like i think it's really hard to 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 truly say like i don't care about the story here now maybe you don't care about the writing um there's a lot of games i don't care about the writing in uh the gears of war for one i liked playing that game i don't care about the writing at all i remember my friend and i would play it and we'd be like super embarrassed like if our wives came home when we were playing it it's like oh yeah sorry honey i'm playing this like hyper masculine weird like get chop up those bugs um kind mm-hmm. of game and like you know i i wouldn't be as embarrassed about it now i guess but like it's a little embarrassing i played the game the way that the cover shooter system worked in that is extraordinarily narrative so hard to say i didn't care about the story at all and that's the beauty of video games it's just sort of like every video game has its own approach to storytelling in terms of is the story in service of propelling your interest in continuing to play the game, or is the gameplay being the propulsive force to get through a story? Every Metal Gear game, for example, has a completely different relationship with the gameplay and the narrative, where yes. five is practically all gameplay, and four is a conclusion to an ongoing storyline, and it is primarily cutscene. It's just interesting watching that relationship emerge, grow, and evolve, where story sort of started as like, we need more than just a person moving forward to keep a game interesting. What else can we do to make our game stand out in this this medium that has limited capability? And that's sort of emerging and evolving into another way of experiencing complex storylines. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And like it is, you know, one of the one of the things I argue in the book is that Metal Gear Solid 2 sets out this like extraordinarily ambitious storyline that I don't think Metal Gear Solid 3 picks up because I think like the backlash against Raiden in Metal Gear Solid 2 was too much uh, mm-hmm. for, for Kojima, who um, I, I don't think it's controversial to say very much likes when people enjoy his work. Like, he, yeah. he super cares um, if people like his work or not. I think like the the quiet uh, controversy where he assured people they would regret their words and deeds is, uh, you know, proof positive of such a thing. Sure. And to that point, the Raiden jokes in Metal Gear Solid 3 is very much uh, an overcorrection of oh, yeah. know, the reaction to Raiden. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think like, you know, on some level, he gets that uh, the way they do ride in Metal Gear Solid 4 and, and Revengeance. There, there's there's some there's some like efforts to to revitalize that character. But like that, that storyline, I feel like is is a is a, a real missed opportunity the way they, they pick it up in three as opposed to, you know, continuing on uh, from two. However, three can't really be said to be a failed game because it really is a a new way of engaging with this question of influence and and leadership and like following orders and 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 you know like um, legacy and stuff like that that we see so often in all of these games and like part of that is because now there's camouflage now your codec looks different now you have to eat in the jungle like you know you have to you have to care about like so many other different weird things um right you're absolutely right like it is it is a totally different relationship with the 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 narrative even if like the basic gameplay of like okay you you know you can shoot sometimes you sneak uh you hit you hit the bumper buttons and go through these big menus that doesn't change but it still is just like radically different you're totally correct yeah for sure 
uh, moving on a little bit, you have talked about games that you've been playing lately. You've been talking about the visual novels. You've been talking about the Yakuza games, which I find to be incredible. What oh, else yeah. have you been playing lately? And are there any particular games you're looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the Shikoden remake because uh, it seems like it's more of just like a cleaning up kind of process. And um, I would like a legal and easy way to play Shikoden 1 and 2 because I never mm-hmm. really gave them much of a chance when they were out on the PlayStation. I'm looking forward to finally sitting down with Disco Elysium and some of the other visual novels that I've had on my list. Like um, Umineko is always one that everyone says to play. It's also like extremely long, but like Danganronpa and stuff like that. Things that I just know people have told me are extremely fun. Uh, I think games like that are some of the ones that I'm, I'm most interested in, like ones that people I like and and respect have told me like, yeah, this this has like a a serious like influence on me. This this game means a lot to me. Actually, you know what? I'll, one I'll say is uh, I'm I I really loved uh, Near Automata, and I never did get the chance to play uh, either the first Near or Near um, uh, whatever. I want to say Reincarnation, but that's the Gotcha Replicant. Game, which, uh, yes, yes, Replicant. Thank you. Yeah, I did play the Gotcha game. It's fine. It's not as good as I thought it would be. But I never got a chance to play Replicant because I just I just didn't. And uh, I am looking forward to play to finally finding some time to play that. I am foolishly hoping that the Steam Deck helps me with these things um, at some point, because the uh, the idea of like having different venues to play games in for some reason makes me think I'm going to be able to. Yeah, I mean, stuff like that, like I, I think the things that I'm really looking forward to are not even continuity or like continuations of the games that I am sort of like perennially obsessed with although i will say the most recent expansion of final fantasy 14 was uh, fantastic uh, really it's games that i know you know people i i respect and, and care for um enjoyed or meant something to them or games that i just like i know i'll have fun with like i i i've never played revengeance and i'm like that's perennially on my list as well to be just like i gotta i gotta go play this game because everyone loved it yeah um yeah no stuff like that like i i, I have like a, a list of like I know I will like this game. It will be a classic and I'll have fun playing it. I'll just keep it installed and eventually inertia will take over and I'll play it kind of thing. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I mean, that's sort of my relationship with today's game where I had the game downloaded for oh, God <laughs> seven years. I actually saw my last played time. I played this ge- I played Jet Set Radio for an hour back in 2015. There you go. <laughs> I, I came back to it a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this episode. And that was the motivation I needed to complete it. And I enjoyed yep, it. I know that feeling. Yep. That's the good part of having to do a podcast. Uh, you know, the bad part's the editing. The good part is I actually get to play <laughs> video games that have been on my backlog forever. The bad part is always the editing. Yeah. But the good part is I finally have a, a motivating factor to go and play games that have been on my list forever. There isn't a single game that I have coming up that I am dreading playing because they're all That's games great. that I've wanted to play. And that feels great. Uh, that's why it's great to have a podcast where you're talking about positive things, uh, because you're generally going to play games that you vibe with. Uh, there's lots of games that you listed that I still have to play. Uh, Disco Elysium being one that I know that I will love, but just haven't gotten to yet. Near Automata is a game that my friend Jared, who was talking about Earthbound for this episode, he recommended, and I started it at his recommendation. I'm having a great time with it. It's extremely long, but I do not feel the length of it at all because I'm enjoying most of the time I'm spending with it. I yeah, I always forget how long that game is because like honestly, it's like it's so enjoyable. Um mm-hmm. I think the only time I felt the length was when I was I I don't know if anyone does this except me, but I get like sad when a game's about to end. So sometimes I don't finish it. 
Yeah. Uh, I just like, I'll, I'll save like the very last bit of it and never finish it. And like, I did that with near automata where I was like, I just never finished the last, uh, ending. And like all my friends were like, are you kidding me? Finish the last ending. Yeah. That's my advice to you. Finish it up. Uh, because, uh, the ending is, um, remarkable. Um, the only time I ever really truly felt the length on it was just like the I net a nine S section. Uh, repeating it. When I am at a point in the game where it gets repetitive, I like to do this thing where I zone out and listen to something like a podcast yeah. and catch up on it. And since I know just when I'm doing the grindy parts of things, not like when I'm when story shit's happening, guys, don't fucking freak out. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite one of my favorite things that I that I, I can remember from playing a grind uh, section in the video game was uh, grinding levels in uh, Shin Megami Tensei three while listening to just like it. It was a what was it even called? I, I can't remember. It was like some horror podcast that had like a storyline that was interesting and then stopped being interesting. But like I listened to the interesting section of it while playing like the same subway monsters like seven or eight hundred times in, in Shimakami Tensei three. And it was totally pleasant. It was great. I think you're right in saying that there's different modalities, even in games that we like enjoy because of their story or enjoy like because they're complex or whatever, right? Like you can you can point to games like that and be like, yeah, this this has a specific modality. Uh, it's it's not like changing between a sports game and a you know a visual novel, but like also at different times in different places within this game, say Nier Automata, I am enjoying it in different ways, and I, I you know I think like that's something that's very particular about video games. It 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 can happen in a novel certainly. I don't think it's a stretch to say it happens less in novels uh, than it does in video games. Sure. I mean, in Nier Automata's case, too, like it is a very much a video game about approaching the same circumstances from different perspectives. So yes. if I'm playing the 9S sections while catching up on Blake Check, don't get mad at me. I'm just simply doing what the game's telling me to do on a level. <laughs> no, you are. Absolutely. And like, I think I think like doing that and and kind of missing some of the cues and stuff is probably one of the best ways to experience the surprises in that game mm-hmm. um, and be like, oh, my God, I didn't see that. coming. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. What? What? No, no. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. And before we get into the main segment of this game, I did want to ask you beyond Jet Grind Radio, Jet Set Radio, whatever you call it. Uh, what are some other games that you just consider to be the most impactful to you? Trevor. Wow. Yeah, so um, so I'll go about this like in in a, in an honest way and saying like games that stuck with me from like early days. You know, like there are, there are games now too, but I would say the the first game that really impacted me and made me think like this like this is important. I really I really love playing like important to me. Like uh, not even like oh this is important culturally because I was I didn't care about that at that age at all. Uh, was was Chrono Trigger? I. I absolutely loved chrono trigger i played it on the super nintendo i was you know such a big fan still am it's a wonderful game um but that was a game that like i don't i don't know if i can like explain like why it was such a had such a big impact on me i will just say like it told a story in a way like i didn't know you actually could and like i didn't realize a video game story could be that complicated i'll also say like along those same lines you know uh xeno gears is a game that I have gone back to again and again. I think it's like extremely half-baked with its philosophy, but it is very good and like one of the most fun and, you know, ultimately also like difficult RPGs I've ever played. I think uh, System Shock 2, which I mentioned earlier, is something that I, I, I think is like in many ways kind of a perfect game. The ending, the very last moment is 
extremely bad because uh, they just like they didn't know how to end it or forget what happened there. Something happened where like they they lost the writer or something like that. It's like it, it's ridiculous, but it really doesn't even take away from it. I, you know, I mean, this is even close to outside of the box, but I will say, you know, Dark Souls, uh, even just the first one, uh, Demon Souls as well. But I've played all of them. Like, I think those are those are like those are just like comfort blankets to me, and I think are are, are wonderful. Uh, Metal Gear Solid Two, out of the whole series, is uh, something everyone should play if they like video games. And uh, I'll just say, so I don't, you know, keep going on. Uh, two games that I don't know if people have played: uh, The Hex which is by the guy who did uh, Pony Island. He's a really interesting uh, uh, artist. And and I think the hex is one of the best sort of like meditations on video games in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also say um, Pathologic 2. Uh, I think Pathologic 2 impacted me. I never finished it, but like even in the short times I played it or like the incomplete times I played it, it impacted me more than a lot of games I spent a lot more time with. Um, just one of the best storytelling games I've ever played. So, so smart and so, so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that that's a little bit uh, scattershot, but uh, those are all games that mean quite a bit to me. I like how eclectic that all is. I'm glad. We have a game that we need to talk about today, a game that feels one of its kind, a game you consider to be your favorite. Jet Set Radio! Directed by Masayoshi Kikuchi, Jet Set Radio, or Jet Grind Radio as it was called when it was originally released in America, was developed by Smilebit and published by Sega. Smilebit was a Sega studio composed of former developers of the Panzer Dragoon games on the Sega Saturn. Development of Jet Set Radio emphasized visuals before gameplay, using Ryuta Ueda's art as a basis for development. Ueda himself was influenced by the art style of the rhythm game Parappa the Rappa on the PlayStation. Jet Set Radio was one of the earliest examples of cell shading in video games, a cartoonish art style that would go on to be used in games like Beautiful Joe, Killer7, No More Heroes, Mad World, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, and so on. Smilebit was composed of younger developers, with an average age of under 25. The age was an important factor as Ueda wanted the game to be cool and in touch with the youth sensibilities at the time. The cool factor, as well as the youth of the developers, gave the game an anti-establishment slant with the 1999 film Fight Club cited as an influence during development. As such, you play as members of an inline skating gang that use graffiti tagging to mark territory while you avoid cops and ultimately work to disrupt the evil acts committed by a major business conglomerate. International appeal became a factor in development. While the game's setting is established firmly in Tokyo, Eric Hayes, known for making album covers for American hip-hop groups like Beastie Boys and Public Enemy, contributed graffiti art for the game. Another contributing factor to its international appeal was its music. The music for Jet Set Radio was composed by Hideki Naganuma, known for his work on this series as well as other Sega games like Sonic Rush and Super Monkey Ball 3D. Jet Set Radio was released for the Sega Dreamcast in North America on October 31st, 2000, under the original title, Jet Grind Radio. Other games released in the year 2000 include Baldur's Gate 2, 
Chrono Cross, Deus Ex, Final Fantasy IX, Perfect Dark, Marvel vs. Capcom 2, Resident Evil Code Veronica, Skies of Arcadia, Shenmue, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, and my personal favorite game of all time, Zelda Majora's Mask. What a what a year. Wow. Yeah, incredible year. And a lot of these games were originally released on the, the Sega Dreamcast. Trevor, have you played many of the games on this list? Uh, yeah, I've played a lot of the games on this list. I Skies of Arcadia, I think, takes the cake for being the game that I most like enjoyed that I constantly forget I played most of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I love Skies of Arcadia. That's such a, that's a wonderful game. Um, God, there's so many. Um, I played more Marvel vs. Capcom 2 than Marvel vs. Capcom, but I would say like maybe all of those games outside of I don't know if I played Code Veronica. I have played. That's a that's like absolutely incredible release here. Majora's Mask, also one of my absolute favorites. God, I could talk about that game all day too. But I, I point these games out because they are all incredible, uh, enduring, critically acclaimed games that generally stand the test of time. Of all the games in the world, what made you settle on Jet Set Radio as your favorite game? I think the one of the reasons I always say it's my favorite game, I have a really hard time picking favorite things. Like people, you know, when I was in uh, graduate school, like people like to ask what your favorite novel is if you're getting a PhD in literature. It's just like a common thing people sort of fall back on. And I hated that. Like I never had a good answer. I was just like, mm-hmm. eventually I just started saying things that I like was reading at the time or like liked in the moment. And I still kind of do that. Like I, I say JR in 2666 and I, you know, there's a lot of books that I really love and you could probably convince me that my favorite book is not one of those two. If you like that, you could convince me it's crime and punishment one day or Gilead another day. Like there's a million books I think are incredible. Sure. Um, and it's hard for me to pick it, pick a, a favorite same with video games. And like, I think the reason I'm able to do it with Jack grand radio is because part of the reason I like it is that it has a vibe for me that, that is like something that just speaks to me more than any other game has. I remember picking it up in an electronics boutique when they had like a Dreamcast display out, basically, and just like instantly falling in love with it. I, I bought a Dreamcast because of it. The game is just like so cool and, and just had this like amazing feel to it that I, I couldn't get enough of. I found when I bought it and played it, like, of course, because, you know, I had all these other games uh, <laughs> for the Dreamcast that I played here and there. But of course, that one I played mm-hmm. all the time, right? And I just like, I beat it and started up again and beat it and started. I must have played that like on the Dreamcast 10, 12 times, just again and again and again and again. And like, there's challenging elements to it, but it's not the hardest game in the world. And like, I think, you know, it was never the challenge that really did it. It was just like, I felt, most content when I was playing it. I think like it's the closest a video game gets to like being a flow state, you know, like just like a, I'm like, I'm so locked in. I just like the, the aesthetics, the, the way these levels are going, the game loop is so rewarding and just like makes me stop caring about the world, but then also doesn't like turn my brain off. And so I don't know, like it, it, it hits a certain kind of like important vibe for me that has always made it stuck in stick in my head. And I think the more and more I've thought about it, it's a game that marries form and function essentially so perfectly. There's not a lot of fat on on Jack Grand Radio. Like it, it it is almost all meat. And like from the the way that the missions are conveyed to you by the DJ to the methods of doing uh, graffiti to the the sort of like goofy enemies leading into the the militarized police enemies, 
it never feels like it's wasting time or wasting energy. It always feels like fairly purposeful. And I don't know, there's something almost, I mean, if I wanted to get like really sort of dramatic about it, I think I mean this, uh, it's not just drama. It's like if you look at something by like um, uh, Manet, uh, like uh, Edouard Manet, the uh, the Impressionist, if you look at his paintings, every single thing in them is intentional to the point of like, it may just mean something simple. It may be a provocation. In many cases, Manet's work is, is a provocation to the audience because it looks directly at the audience, which you know, no one wants an art history lesson. But like mm-hmm. at the period of time when Manet was painting in the 19th century, it, the, the mode was to have disinterested art, to have art that ignored the, the viewer or sort of imagined the viewer wasn't there, right? Manet's work flouts this like very, very much. Like it, it has people in the painting looking directly at the viewer, like essentially making eye contact. And, you know, some of, so some of the meaning is just like, Hey, I can do this, right? Like this is, this is me doing something that you all don't want me to do, but it is like every piece of the painting, right. Is, is meant to convey that thing. And in the same way with desk grind radio, with the cell shading, with the, you know, the, the frenetic quality of the, of the art and of the music and of the, you know, the, the, the approach and the mechanics, it is all just kind of like a shot across the bow to, you know, fairly stayed a fairly, not, not stay it, excuse me. Cause like Tony Hawk was really cool. Like I, I have yeah. nothing against Tony Hawk, but it is a different approach and it is, in all of its efforts, a different approach. And, you know, that it clicked with me is why I ended up thinking about it so much. But I think it's it's important whether or not, um, you know, whether or not it had clicked with me at all, it would have still been important. That's an extremely thoughtful answer. First of all, don't feel terrible about giving an art history lesson on a video game podcast because this is <laughs> a podcast where on my Breath of the Wild episode, I ranted about Percy Bysshe Shelley and flimsily connected it to breath of the wild and that's my most listened to episode so clearly it has an audience there Don't we go about that but we love shelly we all love shelly and speaking about like fa- the favorite book conversation I, there are days where i think mary shelly's frankenstein's my favorite book of all time and then mm-hmm. other days i'm like ah but vana gets slaughterhouse five and that's why the premise of this podcast is talking about the most meaningful games because i feel like that can be a different conversation that puts it back on you and not having to just like it's it's putting yourself in front of a of a work of art instead of putting the work of art in front of you if if that follows you know yeah no it does i think like yeah it's it is like i think saying something is your favorite right like this is this is something that um i mean there's a there's a a very real genealogy with this insight uh and uh one of my uh, professors in um in graduate school named Walter Ben Michaels, who thought a lot, thinks right, he's still alive and working yeah. uh, about um, intention and, and like, you know, the, the way that intentionality matters to, to artists, the idea of uh, 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 an argument based on say facts versus an argument based on taste is something that I taught my students. I, I told my kids about it. Like it's something that I think is really important and it's not particularly taught, which is like, okay, the, the, uh, the argument based on facts might be something like again, it, it's not like a, a rational versus like facts don't f- care about your feelings thing. The, the right. one based on your feelings is still important, but like taste ends up being a thing where I say, Oh, I think this is really beautiful. And you say, I think that's really ugly. And then we'll just argue past each other. There's nothing we can do to convince each other. However, if I say, I think this is about 
you know, man's inhumanity to man. And you say, well, I think it's about like the, the arbitrary quality of natural selection. We could argue about uh, that and maybe come to some sort of conclusion based on evidence from the, from the piece of art. Right. And I think ultimately when you're talking to people about their most favorite thing, right. You're talking to them about something that is ultimately like, do you think the sunset is beautiful? I don't. Uh, so we can't we can't ever come to a conclusion. When you're talking about meaningful, you're talking more about the second one because you do have to make an argument as to why something is meaningful. You never really have to make an argument as to why you like something. It could just be for no reason at all, and it still is just as valid. I appreciate that analysis. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. Doctor approved, everybody. Anyway. Um <laughs> uh but no, I, I appreciate your analysis on Jack Grand Radio and never in a million years would I ever think to connect its presentation to that of a work of Manet. That's very beautiful. Thank you for, for putting that out there. Oh, anytime. My pleasure. And we've talked about game preservation a bit earlier in the episode, but I do also have to take some time to talk about it here in my segment, No Country for Old Games, uh, which we will do now. The subject of game preservation means a great deal to me. I consider video games an art form, and as such, they're worthy of preservation. In this segment, I rate the game's availability on a scale of A to ARG. ARG being an exclamation of frustration and is in no way me covertly advocating for piracy, which, like graffiti, is illegal. The original Japanese, American, and European versions of Jet Set Radio differ in multiple ways besides the title of Jet Grind Radio in North America. While the core gameplay is the same across all versions, the US and European versions feature additional tracks, and the US Jet Grind Radio features two additional stages based on New York City, as well as two additional playable characters with their own storyline in these levels. Additional tracks in Jet Grind Radio that aren't included in the Japanese release include songs by hip-hop group Jurassic 5, as well as a remix of Dragula by Rob Zombie. In 2012, an HD port was developed by Blitworks for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, Windows, Vita, and iOS and Android. The smartphone versions were delisted in 2015 because of compatibility issues with subsequent versions of iOS, but the 360 version is backwards compatible on the Xbox One, and the PC version can be bought on digital storefronts, often for as little as $1 during certain sales. So there's a different version that this game comes out that incorporates elements of the original Jet Grind Radio on the Dreamcast in America. It incorporates elements from its original release in Japan, elements of it from its European release, and it also makes some quality of life changes, uh, one such being the fact that you have camera controls now to account for the fact that modern controllers have two sticks instead of one. Oh, interesting. That is a work that makes it transformative and also has the HD widescreen look to it. My point being, talking about all this, when you get the urge to replay this game and there's more than one version of it out there, how do you do it? I play it when I play it. I don't have my working Dreamcast anymore, in part because I don't have like I'm not one of the the true heads who has like a CRT TV hookup. <laughs> I will usually boot it up on Steam and play the Dreamcast cl Classics version. Um, and this is a pure taste thing. I don't like the idea of uh, camera controls in Check Ground Radio. Like I I I had heard about the re-release, had heard about the camera controls, and just have never touched it because of that. It like. The, the fact that the camera follows you and you're just kind of like focusing on the kinetic force of your player just makes me feel so good. I don't think that that's a meaning thing. I don't think it makes the game worse necessarily to have camera controls. I just don't really feel like I would like it. Um, so I usually play the Dreamcast Classics version, which um, unless I'm 
vastly misremembering uh, is is just basically a port of the Dreamcast uh, one, along with, you know, various other Dreamcast games that I don't usually ever touch. Right. Uh, the HD re-release, which is also available on Steam. To many, this can be the definitive version of the game. For you, you prefer the Dreamcast Classics version of it. And like you said, it's, it's just a taste thing. It is, yeah. And I like, and part of that's because like ultimately the aesthetic and the story are maintained regardless of what you're doing. Like, If you want a sort of definitive version um, that has everything... It's not like it's going to have like a, a DLC that may, <laughs> that makes it like, you know, a vastly different experience. Ultimately, it's going to be, you know, the the aesthetic, the look, the feel, the the vibe is going to is going to be maintained. Um, mm-hmm. It ultimately ends up being like, OK, what what do you want from this? Um, it becomes even less of a question of like Resident Evil 2 versus Resident Evil 2 remake or far less of a question in my mind than Final Fantasy 7 versus Final Fantasy 7 remake. Right. Uh, exactly. So just for the audience who may want to understand like the differences, they're not major differences. Um, the HD version has all of the music from all three versions of the original. The two tracks from the power release are omitted. Dragula's on it, though. So that's what matters. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. They managed to get Dragula back. Uh, I'm t- glad. 12 yeah. years after the original release. Tracks from Jet Set Radio Future are also included as bonus contents, as well as achievements, online leaderboards, and the ability to upload your own graffiti. A new camera system was added as well, the latter being one of the most significant additions as a criticism of the original was its camera. And now that twin stick controllers are the norm, unlike in year 2000, that was something that they, they could incorporate. Yeah, and, and like that that makes a lot of sense. It does speak to like some of the improvements they could make. Um, what's odd is that like there's so few games... I feel that uh, that do this well, like actually go ahead and get rights and like do the work of like being like, we want to make the best version of the game possible. I kind of feel bad. I haven't given the re- <laughs> the, re- the remake a chance. Maybe I will now because that is that is how I like games to approach remakes and like sure. re-releases is like, I mean, you, you almost hate to say it because it gives like credit to the devil, but uh, they're doing a good job. Konami's doing a wonderful job of doing it with Shakodan, it seems like. They're just like, yeah, let's let's fix some of these translation errors. Let's get everything ship shape. We know what's wrong because so many people have seen it. And anything that that helps um, unify the the soundtrack, more power to it, honestly. Broken clocks are right twice a day. <laughs> That's right. At least in the case of Konami. Ultimately, and because you can't buy a physical copy of this game, I can't give it an A but it is readily available to buy on PC, often for as low as a dollar, so I can't give it a failing grade either. I hope it becomes more readily available in the future. I really think this game would be the perfect type of game to port to the Switch, Uh, but ultimately it is still a game that is not as accessible as it should be. This is as good a time as any to discuss the music of this game, which is mm-hmm. a significant part of its legacy. The soundtrack is a mix of licensed music and Hideki Naganuma's original music. What do you think of this soundtrack and how much of an influence do you think it has made on your taste in music? Not a lot of influence on my taste in music, although I will say it's probably one of the things that convinced me to give um, rap a try. Uh, like I'm, I always liked rap, but like as like an annoying, you know, punk and emo kid or whatever, like. I definitely was around a lot of people who were like, well, rap is just crap without the C. I don't know if that's still something people say. No, Hopefully it is. not. But uh, it's not as it's not as a common uh, thing, especially God. since like late millennials and Gen Z have grown up in a primarily hip hop uh, culture. 
it's but, like yeah. good. I like because it's it's good music. I think like yeah, like the the people who are just like this isn't rock or country. Like I don't or like I mean honestly, it was more just like this isn't rock, but rap and country suck. I would say it definitely gave me more interest in revisiting something that wasn't just like the punk and and hardcore I was listening to at the time. And before I say what my favorite song is on it, uh, I will say I listened to the soundtrack a lot, which was not like me in those days. Usually when I would listen to when I would play video games, I would listen to a um, an album over them. I'd listen to like, you know, whatever. When I played Final Fantasy seven, the first one, I like the soundtrack that exists in my mind for that game for me, for much of it is uh Metallica's reload. Cause I was just happened to be listening to it at that yeah. time. Like just like, you know, weird stuff, but exactly what you do is like a 13 year old or whatever for Jack Ryan radio. I always listen to the soundtrack uh, as far as I can recall. And like my, my favorite in it is like, is super brothers. I think super brothers is, uh, is a pretty important song. Humming the bass line is my other one. So a guitar Vader and a, and a Naganuma one. Honestly, though, like you go through this and there's so many that like immediately like pop into my head and are just like kind of perfect songs. There's stuff on here, like even even the stuff that's weird, like just like the cold song just got wicked or Dragula. They fit in in a certain way that like I can't I can't even know really, like Jurassic five. I remember I recently like was listening to Spotify and Jurassic five came up and like immediately I was like, oh, my God, like I know this band from <laughs> from Jack Grind. And like it is like I don't know, there's a there's a sort of like parallel quality to this and the Tony Hawk soundtrack and that like the music just matches the vibe so well that everyone kind of like everyone who played it can like sing super brothers or whatever like it, it's just like it's so infectious yeah no i mean the music is extremely earwormy oh yeah when i was going back listening to the soundtrack in isolation like sweet soul brother now just like is just constantly like that sample is just always playing in my head oh yeah God, what was another one? Um, yeah, rock that shit, homie. Every time, like that, that little uh, public enemy sample that one song has on there is just yes. always fucking in there all the time. Oh my god. Yeah, I think coming the baseline is a very good answer, and it's also my answer in terms of the Naganuma tracks uh, as to what my favorite particular one is. One that I like just because it kind of stands out a little bit from the rest of the soundtrack is about mm. the city. Um, okay. Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. I like that one just because it's, it's very 2000s rock, but not like butt rock, just kind of like, this is almost a third wave ska, but it's very sincere J rock as well. Yeah. I also really like uh, Improvised by Jurassic 5, though. So I, it, it's hard even to nail down what a favorite track would be. But it is a, it's, it's a soundtrack that I have a lot of affection for as someone who played this game two weeks ago. <laughs> it's like it is. It's it's a weird game because like it does it kind of infects your like your your own appreciation for it, too, where it's just like, yeah, like I really like this game. Like I really like 
everything about it. And I feel like if I had played it yesterday, I would have some of the same love for it. It feels timeless in a way that mm-hmm. um, I can't quite put my finger on, but like is is very, very important in in my appreciation of it. I don't disagree. It is an infectiously charming game that it is very hard to get mad at, even when there are some completely bullshit challenges, <laughs> at least to me in my experience playing a 22 year old game. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure if you if you're coming at it without like glowing love in your heart, there might be some uh, some moments that don't hold up quite as well. Sure, but again, like the the music is just working really well. The aesthetics blend really well with the the music, the world that this game is, which is a version of the Shibuya District in Japan. It it all works really well, and that perfect combination of everything working together to be this game it it just wins me over instantly like if even if i didn't like this game and i do i like this game a lot i would try and force myself to just because of how well realized <laughs> it is in the visual and the um audio god god yeah the whole thing just it's it's great stuff yeah no I, i'm glad you liked it like it is it's such a treasure in, in my mind and like i it's like the one thing where if people ask me like what game means a lot to me, I'm always willing to say this game and it never feels like a stretch. It never feels wrong. Like, you know, if I were to be like, oh, yeah, like, um, oh, my favorite game, it's it's Xenogears. I would then stop and be like, but do I really like that better than Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne? Or do I really like that better than Final Fantasy 12 or 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 Final Fantasy 14? And like I, I'd be like, yeah, maybe, maybe I don't. Or like I'd say, oh, oh Nier Automata is my favorite game of the past five years. Is it? Like, is mm-hmm. or is it not? Like I I second guess myself all the time. But with this, it just like I don't know, like it has a resonance that that is extraordinarily hard to argue against. And like for me that kind of comfort and that kind of like joy of of experiencing something is it's it's trivial in a certain way but it's also like when it holds together so well and remains like a a a piece that you can sort of look at and say like this this is so coherent and and wonderful that's a rare thing um there's a lot of movies that i've watched you know 20 times and i don't think a lot of them hold up uh, in that same way i will say like you know friday the 13th 8 does not hold up the same way despite uh, me loving to go back and watching uh, Jason uh, take Manhattan. <laughs> Ultimately, I watched that a lot because it was goofy. And that's okay. But when it's like, when I can look back at it and say, like, I watched this because, or I played this because, like, it really does speak to me. I don't know. That's that's uh, that's cool. I, you know, I, don't, I don't get that experience very often. Sure. For me, the way that I am able to measure an impact the game has on me is just, like, how much of it I take with me into my everyday life, even when I'm not playing it. I did that by listening to a lot of Jabiroquai after I wasn't playing <laughs> nice. the game. Like I'd be walking around listening to Can Heat while I'm going on walks. Um, <laughs> that uh, new Beyonce album that came out has a lot of house music. It's very uh, 90s house. And I've been appreciating that a lot more since playing this game. And there's another uh, album that I've been listening to that I'll actually mention during the recommendations section. All right. What is something that Jet Grind Radio does that you wish more games would do? That's a good question. I, I you know, I wish that I wish that it would. I think one of the things that I am most reminded of that I that I enjoy every time I play it is the the varied quality of um, antagonists and antagonistic like things in it. 
that like, you know, there is that intensification, that ramping up, right? Like everything gets slightly harder. Like all of a sudden, oh, there are cops with guns and now there's helicopters and stuff. And like, oh, you get to grind on the helicopter. Like, yeah, like of course, that's great. Mm-hmm. But I like that the difficulty is like it varies in wide ways where it's like, okay, now now your antagonist is someone who's going to try and hurt you. Um, in so and like insofar as you know, in the in as much as they hurt you, they will stop you from doing graffiti. It's not like you will die. You know, maybe they'll try and arrest you, or like they're a rival gang. And then sometimes it's just like this is a hard tag to do. You have to be able to like be patient and do this. And then sometimes it's time challenges and stuff. Like I know that's sort of something that a lot of games in the era did, um, particularly like cart racers and like pilot wings, et cetera, et cetera. But I just think I think like the way it handles differing challenges for the reader or for the reader for the player is um it feels organic like every challenge feels like something that the characters could conceivably be like dealing with and to to marry that level of like narrative immersion and material or mechanical uh variety is something that i i wish more games would be able to do because i feel like sometimes we get these Ubisoft kind of zones where we just like where games will be like, all right, now it's an escort mission. Now it's a mission where you have to like kill five of one thing. Now it's a, you know, kill anything that moves mission. And it's like, yeah, okay. Like we've done this all before. I wish there would be something else. So yeah, that's, that's one thing I wish they would do. Um, Also, I just wish people would try new things like cell shading, like uh, cell shading obviously is old hat now, but uh, when, when this game came out, uh, it was not old hat. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It, it, I mean, like, I think this game is kind of the one that really made cell shading into something that this medium could do well. And obviously other games have done it since uh, Wind Waker, uh, Okami, and so many games have done it, like you said, to the point that it now feels old hat. But I think that this is a game that made people, other developers, feel confident that this was an art style that was achievable in a 3D space. Yeah. And I, that completely changes the game. And it's just one of the many ways this game was influential. I mean... I believe it was a design philosophy that this game was designed to be the kind of game that you couldn't just simply port onto the PlayStation 2 because of how colorful it was. Yeah, that's a really good point. And like that is that is a it's a relic of like the the um console wars in a certain way, which I don't think is is so much a thing anymore. Like that's there's something very I mean there's something very ridiculous and reductive about the console wars obviously, but mm-hmm. like also, it's, it, we do kind of have like a samey thing uh, in 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 the way our games look. No, I mean, there is that for sure. I do think that like one of the things that really made me realize that the console wars are well and truly dead is just uh, the release of Metal Gear Solid V, uh, mm-hmm. wherein the previous Metal Gear Solid games had this huge emphasis on the technological specificities of the PlayStation as a console, right? So that you could only achieve on the PlayStation and Kojima really testing the limits of this this technology like even in four which is the playstation 3 which is just this very unique architecture he's still doing stuff like running an emulator of a ps1 game to achieve a flashback back to shadow moses or um i don't know the the, the psycho mantis fight that happens towards the end of the game those are all like things that are very specific to the way that the playstation 3 was designed or just using the blu-ray discs in general on the game disc but In V, that was a multi-platform game that was released on the Xbox just as easily as it was released on the PlayStation. And absolutely, yeah, technological sophistication wasn't really there anymore because these consoles aren't built so specifically. There are definitely differences, but they aren't so meaningful that Kojima could play in that space and just find some very specific stuff, you know? 
Yeah, no, I, I I totally see what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's it is a it's a thing of like you know even even the stuff that didn't work added to a kind of I don't know difference in the in the game itself. Like the 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 varying tensions in the in the PS5. People talk about like oh you know like but like you know dual sense and stuff like that. Like all the all the weird stuff that the the gimmick stuff. Um, it's so like I don't know. It's so interesting. Like the 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 old stuff that like wasn't even necessarily good added this like sense of um, newness and like, and experimentation to these games, even, even like to take it back to the dreamcast, the little dreamcast, like friend you had like, the little guy that sat in your controller. Like mm-hmm. that was pointless, but it was great. Like it was a little Tamagotchi. Yeah. And your games showed you a little something in like a little pixel guy. And like, I wish more systems did that now. That would be fun. For sure. There isn't as much of a novelty uh, as like you had like the Sega neighbor and the Nintendo neighbor back then. And that novelty is kind of gone because, um, yeah, you know, everything's just kind of the same. Really, it's just a frustration of a friend not having the same console as you when you want to do multiplayer. Right. Exactly. That's all it is. And like, yeah, it's I don't know. I don't know whether to I don't know how to feel about that. I, I think probably bad, but I don't think there's like a think there's a, a lesson there. I think maybe the lesson is value when people are being different. Uh, yeah. Even if it's not to to get a console over, the lesson is never try. Something I do like about this game that I want to touch on very quickly, and you touched on this in the uh, No Cartridge episode on Jack Grind Radio, the way that this game has that kind of pre nine eleven rebellious uh, anti establishment vibe totally, to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cops are immediately firmly established as brutal antagonists using excessive force on graffiti taggers. You, as a gang member, ostensibly, you commit no acts of violence. You are not capable of committing violence. If you bump into another skater, you are the one that you know feels damage. Uh, making contact with uh, a cop, you're supposed to run away from cops. If they touch you, they slow you down. Yeah. Your fail state isn't death, even though you are getting absolutely fucking blasted by cops. <laughs> yeah, you know, just, yeah, you know, absolutely. Guns, missiles from helicopters. The violence is all one-sided. And I do think that it's it's not a didactic game. It's not trying to impart some manifesto of left-wing philosophy onto you, but I do find it remarkable that the game is, you know, it's a teen-rated game mainly because of the the lyrical content, like again, rock that shit, homie. But yeah. there's nothing in terms of like the violence that is committed against you is highly excessive because again, riot gear, guns, military helicopters, literal tanks, all you're doing is just committing graffiti acts against personal property, which does right. speak to our reality in terms of personal property is perceived as more valuable than human life. Yeah. And like, it is, it is the, it's the critique of that too, where like, I don't know. I think that critique is even something that's a little bit taboo to say nowadays. Sure. That critique of saying like, yeah, like that, you know, I, I think, I think personal property doesn't matter when it, when it is, you know, that and a person's expression or a person's life. Whereas in the nineties, that was just like a standard standard bearer thing. And so it seems a lot more radical, but I mean, it is, it is making that claim like pretty full throatedly. You've talked about this subject a lot in terms of politics and its relationship with video games a lot in your book. And also what is, you know, the efficacy of a political statement if it is presented in such a way where it's palatable, it's not saying something mm-hmm. like so excessively extreme that it would diminish how many copies of a game were sold. 
and and I mean that is a very salient point. I'm not saying that this game is for the communists only or anything like that. It's uh, but yeah, no, no, it's not. I mean, yeah, you could you could. It's fairly apolitical in a lot of ways. But I do think that if this were this game released, you know, as presented today, it wouldn't. It would at least be a you know an annoying conversation to have online where people are just throwing like you know whatever the buzzwords are around. Whereas when this game came out in nineteen, sorry, when this game came out in two thousand, it was just another video game. You know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the needle moved in a direction where society has evolved to the point where this has become a taboo. The game is only really retroactively transgressive because of how we interact with media in a societal sense. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think like it's it's one of the things that's that's changed about this game that otherwise feels kind of like a uh, I don't know how to say this like a weird sort of like oasis out of time. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> This game was released the same year as Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. I don't think it's controversial to say that on a gameplay level, there's more uh, interactive sophistication to the Tony Hawk games than oh, Jet sure, Grind Radio. Yeah. I mean, it's not It's not even, yeah. I mean, like this, uh, Jet Grind Radio is not like at all, like super interested in uh, making difficult combos or whatever. <laughs> like, right. I mean, that's, yeah, it, it, it's fun, but it's not, yeah, it's not particularly hard that way. But yeah, this is a game that came out the same year as Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2. In your own words, what do you think it is about this game that made it distinct to you from those Tony Hawk games and extreme sports games in general at the time? And what does it offer you that games of that genre don't? Well, so one thing, this is a cheap answer, but it's a true answer. Uh, One thing is that I was very bad at the Tony Hawk games. I've never (laughs) been able to be good at them. I never figured them out. Uh, I liked them. I liked playing them at my friends' houses and stuff, but like I never was good at them. And so that's one thing that they have is that like I can be good at them. Which is the same reason why I played like more Marvel versus Capcom two than King of Fighters. So like, sure, I do think the other thing is this is just like more colorful. Like it's it's less about precision and less about like, I mean Tony Hawk is like a really interesting game and like I I, I this isn't meant as like uh, a critique at all, but like I think you know it's it's made to be essentially a sports game. Like it's made meant to be like something where you parlay uh, video game tactility into the ability to sort of like be an athlete in a certain sense, right? Like in a, as, as Madden would. Uh, similarly, Jack Grand Radio is more interested in sort of like painting a picture, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, whether or not you you mean that literally or figuratively uh, than, than the Tony Hawk games. Um, and I don't even think it has anything to do with the story. Like the story is is neat and, a, and an interesting extra. I just think like the presentation is is far less about like making you feel like you are doing graffiti, right? Like it's just much more about like, a kind of video game only tactility where like sports don't don't really play into it. I think that's like ultimately the difference between the two. Um I think like I think in terms of like a sports game, like a game that has like a uh, a high barrier and like or not a high barrier, but a high sort of like threshold of mastery. Like uh Tony Hawk absolutely is that game. Like I would not tell anyone who was like looking for that experience that Jack Red Radio is going to uh, light their world on fire. No, I get it. Tony Hawk was designed with the with the idea of number one, like selling the brand of Tony Hawk and skateboarding in general in that in in that time period. But it was more of being like fulfilling the fantasy of what it's like to be a pro skater. That it, it has a very simple message, and it delivered on that 
Jack Grind Radio is such a specific game. It is such a unique game. It is a one-of-a-kind game. And really, besides the aesthetics, one way that you could just differentiate it immediately from a, a Tony Hawk game is just the soundtrack. I mean, I love the Tony Hawk soundtrack, right? I mean, Tribe Called Quest, Dead Kennedys, all that stuff is very formative yeah. for me. But you're not going to hear acid jazz on in a, in a Tony Hawk game. The design philosophies of these two franchises and extreme sports games in general versus checker and radio are just completely different this is aesthetics before gameplay in the case of check grind radio and i think that is a philosophy that has contributed to its longevity yeah i agree yeah no for sure and it's it is like you know it is something that especially in the time was a was a much more japanese uh like an aesthetic and a, and a mentality that was uh, a far more uh prevalent in Japanese devs than American devs. And I, I think you like, especially for that period of time, you could draw that distinction. Of course. Of course, we do have to kill our darlings a little bit on this show. Oh, no, yeah. no video game is perfect, although many come close. What's something you wish this game did better? You know, I wish there was more distinction between the gangs. I, I think they're fun and they're neat and all. I just I like I wish because you can eventually play as them too. Like there's a lot of like playable characters and stuff. I just wish there was more distinction between like, you know, the the competing gangs because it does kind of feel like the game set up to be like gangs and then cops, right? As you're as you're like protag as your antagonist. And it's just kind of like, okay, like it's a progression. I just like I think there's so much, so much uh left on the bone with those guys. You know, the, the designs of your rival gangs are so neat, just like the designs of your skaters are so cool. I wish that the abilities of the rival gangs were as lovingly dealt with as the uh, skate as like the main characters of your gang. Like, I I think that would have added a lot more depth to the to like the first few sections. And like, there's something about the final levels that are more memorable, even though they are worse. Like the the skyscraper levels are like not nearly as interesting as the the Shibuya levels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they're more memorable because you play them more, and there's like more varied enemies, and it's harder. I feel like if there was a little bit more variety in the gangs, like, you know, those levels could be made to shine a bit more. And that would have been nice. The other thing is like, and sorry if this makes me sound like a wee, but it's more of a fuck America sentiment. (laughs) Japanese cities are just better designed for, you know, pedestrians than American cities. So the fact that there is an elevator in the Manhattan equivalent level is kind of an admission of kind of like, all right, look, look, it's not as cool of a, a city to navigate through than the Shibuya district, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. And I think like it would be very difficult to to get that feeling of the Shibuya district in a in a in a game that was like a an American city. I guess you could do like certain areas of Manhattan, not Chicago. Chicago's all grids. As much as I love Chicago, like don't don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um it, it's the same with um uh the 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 area in uh, Yakuza as well. Like those maps are so fun to navigate because mm-hmm. of all like the alleys and shortcuts and ways that you can get around. I think the the kind of American quality of the last few levels where it's like height and excess and stuff like that, it makes it feel a little less unique for sure. Of course. And it does grind like the actual act of navigation to a halt every time you have to get onto a lift uh, and then wait for the lift to take you up to the, uh, to the roof. 
and then hope to God <laughs> yeah. that uh, you don't fall off the roof again. Otherwise, you're going to have to go back to the elevator. That's right. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a frustrating design thing. But again, those were not last minute changes, but simply the, something that they sort of put in there versus the, the the careful consideration made for the earlier levels that are a lot more fun to navigate and find the little nooks and crannies and shortcuts and secrets in. And this is just a personal nitpick because I failed a lot in this game and I'm so used <laughs> to how the Tony Hawk games, you're able to just like pause it and then press reset and you're at the beginning again. I wish this game had that. Just a little like mission reset mode instead of waiting for the fail state to happen. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that for sure. Like it, it is it is a little clunky that way. It is a uh, it, it's definitely an artifact of its time. No, for sure. I mean, like I, I do have to like temper my criticism was with the fact that <laughs> I understand that this was a lot of these developers first game and you know the average age of the developers was under 25 it wasn't a big crew and they're emphasizing the aesthetic more than the gameplay necessarily in the early stages of its design so mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not going to like pick on like the the little the little nitpicks in terms of like gameplay stuff but I will I will pick on those those maps for the uh the later stages cuz they are they are yeah. a little goofy good call So this is the first time in our show where we've actually covered the first game in a series. Every other game thus far has been a sequel. You've never played Jet Set Radio Future, though. No, I have not. No, this was a game that was originally released on the Xbox. And ironically is, even though it's a newer game, ends up less accessible than the originator uh, just because it's a game that's sort of stuck on the Xbox and has a lot of specific rights and licensing issues around it. It's not even backwards compatible with the 360 and consoles onward. Would you say that you're interested in playing this game beyond the fact that it is essentially a sequel to Jet Set Radio? I am. Yeah, I I am. I am interested in doing that. I know that Xbox emulation has gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, So maybe maybe that'll be a way I can do it. I would probably try and like track down an Xbox to, to play this. I know like it is like famously one of the ones that is not backwards compatible, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, I would just, I would just like love to, love to play that game eventually. It's, it's, it's been on my list. It's, it's similar to another series I genuinely love and need to play some of the later sequels to the Abe's uh, Odyssey games, the Oddworld right. games. It, it, it has a similar feeling to me where there's just like these games, Munch's Odyssey or whatever, where it's like. Uh, kind of a redheaded stepchild that I've never touched mm-hmm. um, and should at some point. Uh, so it holds that kind of fascination for me. Sure. I, I totally get it. I did also yeah. just want to point out the fact that this is the first time we've actually covered a first game in a series on the show. And, and it just feels so complete because like so many series have been so incumbent and had to transform and grow over a series of times before it reached a point where it had that refinement. But this game out of the gate is already so great. Yeah, no, I, I I absolutely agree. I think like part of the reason I don't care as much of like not playing, it's not like, you know, eating me up is that this game feels full in, in a certain way that I like, I don't need the sequel. Um, although I love it so much that I want the sequel, if that makes sense. Oh, of, of course, I, I, I get it. We've talked about how this game is influential in a broad sense. We've talked about how much it means to you as a video game. How has this game sort of influenced your taste and sensibilities in the years since you first played it? Um, you know, I think it's like it's definitely encouraged me to kind of go out of my comfort zone with games. I think uh, that that's probably the biggest thing because I never would have played like a sports or skating game when I first picked this up. Like I just I liked playing it in the 
in Electronics Boutique. I can remember the setup and playing it. But I strictly played RPGs at this point. Like, I don't even think I was playing many platformers. Like, I, you know, right. I can pick up Crash Bandicoot or whatever. But, like, I was just playing JRPGs, and I played a hell of a lot of them. Uh, you know, I would have never picked up a sports game, in part because I hadn't gotten really into sports yet. Like, I would watch the Eagles in the playoffs, and that was about it. I think this helped me kind of expand my taste. I won't say it, it didn't have a lot to do or anything to do with me, like, liking sports that's a that's a whole different uh, and unfortunate uh well i don't know i like sports a lot the phillies just won so i can like <laughs> sports yeah like i think it really did open up my sensibilities to trying new things to being like well maybe i will like this like there are games that you know i should try even though i've never played anything quite like it and so without this i probably wouldn't have tried things like you know the the silver case or, or like you know, even even some like, uh, uh, I mean, Final Fantasy fourteen, I would have never tried because I didn't know what I, I had never played an MMO before. Um, I think Jack Grand Radio is like definitely one of the first games where like personally, because I chose it, I went outside of my comfort zone. It wasn't like, oh, this is the only game I have because like it's a game that someone bought me at Christmas and, you know, it was the only one that was in like the discount bin and it's the game I have for the next three months. This was something I chose. And so like, I think that is a big thing uh, that it did for me. I love that answer. Thank you so much for that. And now I sort of want to reverse that question a little bit. At the end of every show, we widen everything up again and talk about broader recommendations in general. What are some things that you love, whether that is a game, a novel, film, TV show, so on and so forth? Interesting. That you would recommend to people who connect to Jet Grind Radio in some way? That is really interesting. Um, Hmm. So one one thing that I I feel and and like I don't even know if this is necessarily like a great movie necessarily um mm-hmm. but it, it gives me the same feeling of Jack Grand Radio in in a kind of exploratory way it's dark but it's 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 not as like uplifting documentary um dark days is really super interesting it's a uh it's a game that was like or a, a, a movie about people who were living in the subway tunnels under new york city and like follows them around it's like a, i think the whole soundtrack is dj shadow stuff it, it, oh. it's it's it, it's it's like of a it's of a moment it's interesting and it also kind of like it's grimier of course uh and less colorful it's in black and white but like it has that sort of like strange exploratory like i don't know what i'm gonna see next quality of of um Check grind radio and and has that sort of like feel of of an urban space that it that it conveys. In terms of a book, I would say, you know, this isn't this isn't uh, necessarily the most fashionable uh, pick, but it is a book that I think is is legitimately quite good. Um, uh, I wouldn't say all of his books are, but uh, this one is uh, Paul Auster's New York trilogy, particularly mm-hmm. the the City of Glass. I think is I think is quite strong, and again, like. There's something very urban about Jack Grand Radio, not just in terms of it being like about a city. It, it like it feels like navigating an urban an urban space, and so like I think those are those are particularly good moments in in uh, film and and literature. That kind of if you like Jack Grand Radio, you might like the vibes those put across. Okay, I also have a couple of recommendations of my own that I want to put yes. out there. Uh, firstly, I do want to recommend any other Dreamcast game you can sort of get your hands on particularly ones that share <laughs> so this game's fun. sensibilities. 
there's a Dreamcast bundle on Steam that includes games like Space Channel 5, Sonic Adventure 2, Crazy Taxi, Nights into Dreams, among others. I think that's a good place to start because these are a good showcase of what made the Dreamcast such a unique and specific console in a transitional era for video games. The gameplay uh, may not hold up tremendously for every single game, but I do think that these games are still reasonably fun, especially for their price point. Mm -hmm. I call out Sonic Adventure 2 specifically one because that is a game that I played countless, countless hours as a kid. And it is one that also has an, an eclectic soundtrack of various genres, a lot of grinding on rails, a lot of that. We're trying to be cool. <laughs> Sega's cool sensibility to it at the turn of the millennium. And I do think at some point in development, these developers got to see Jet Set Radio and try to incorporate ideas of that into their own game. So yeah, I totally definitely recommend that. Another thing I would recommend, uh, I've recommended this in a previous episode, I'm mentioning it again, uh, Fooly Cooly, uh, which was an anime that aired on Toonami in the early 2000s and also has Great a very, pick. Yeah, very colorful, amazing soundtrack. If, if you're not going to watch six episodes of a 20 minute anime, that would take you a total of two hours to watch. At least listen to the soundtrack by Pillows, which just all sorts of weird sounds. It's just a very cool anime. It's a very good coming-of-age story. Aspects of it may not hold up well in a 2022 environment, but I have to shout it out. It's a piece of media that does mean quite a bit to me, despite its edges. Building off of that, just real quick, the anime Paranoia Agent is a similar sort of moment or feel to that uh, yeah. in my mind. Fully Cooly is a little different, but like... I think I think it would uh, I think it would be a good one. But go on, keep keep going. I'm sorry, I just I couldn't I couldn't let that go because everyone should watch Paranoia Agent. No, I mean if you have something to shout out, shout it out. Um, I will. Oh yeah. And lastly, and probably most significantly, uh, because I've been listening to this a lot since uh, playing Jet Grind Radio, I've been going back to the music by the Avalanches a lot, specifically that first album since I left you which came out around the same time as Jet Set Radio. I think it came out in America in 2000. And that is a sample-heavy album. It has over 900 ugh, Jesus samples, I think. Wow. Uh, yeah, it is. It's an incredible work of art. I do love their follow-up albums in the years since, too. But that first one in particular, uh, considering its time and place, that would be the one that I would recommend. The music just sounds like you could put it right into into the world of Jet Set Radio, and it wouldn't it wouldn't miss a beat. It would it would fit right in. So since I left you by the Avalanches. This is Tokyo's Gorilla Music Broadcaster, Jet Set Radio! Let's go to the mailbag. A letter from Mr. Osaki asks, How do I get rid of these nasty roaches? Easy, just burn your house down! Before I end this episode, I did want to read some listener-submitted comments. I asked some listeners for their thoughts on Jet Set Radio on the show's Twitter page, at SelectPodStart, and here were some replies that stood out to me. At Here Muggins said, The visuals and music are great and largely hold up well. The controls and movement... Not so much. Similarly, at Adequate Scott said, I like watching and listening to it a lot, but playing it doesn't hit well in 2022. I loaded Jet Set Radio Future up recently on my Xbox, and while it was a feast for the eyes, the gameplay loop and controls just aren't really there. This does hit a point that I touch on in the episode where I don't feel like the controls are quite up to the modern standard, but it is a very visual and audio experience first. No video game quite looks and sounds exactly like it. It does feel transgressive in that way. 
and I don't mind that the gameplay doesn't hold up tremendously, especially since this is now a 22-year-old game. Dre at Pizza Dinosaur, a friend of the pod and previous guest on our Super Mario Bros. 3 episode said, A prime example of sound, art, and gameplay colliding in such a fashion to become something indescribably special. Simply put, it is a testament to the power of video games. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for me. But I have a Jet Set Radio tattoo, so maybe I'm biased. And it's a kick-ass tattoo. Thanks for writing in, everybody. Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, Kiefer, thanks for having me on. This was a, this was a blast. Of course, absolutely. You're always welcome back anytime to discuss any other video game you'd like. You were tremendous. I really like this discussion that we had. But before you go, please, please, please take the time to promote yourself. Okay. Uh, my podcast is called No Cartridge. It's available almost everywhere, just on, uh, you know, the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, my book is called Story Mode. That is also available at all at all good booksellers um, and bad ones, too. But uh, it doesn't matter where you buy it. Uh, it's all the same to me. Um, so so shop with your conscience and I will. Uh, that is perfectly fine. Uh, I will not judge you one way or the other. Um and yeah, there's, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash no cartridge, uh, always a work in progress. And, uh, yeah, keep, keep your eyes open. If you like things on Twitter, I'm at Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. Um, and some, some streams and things coming up, uh, will be, uh, promoted there. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, if you liked this conversation here, I, uh, hours and hours and hours of other mm-hmm. things that I've recorded about, you know, if you like sports, I, I also have a show called the dirty innings. So if you're a Phillies fan or uh, uh, just a baseball fan, you might enjoy that too. All right. So to summarize, follow, listen, and read Trevor's work. Now <laughs> again, Trevor, this is an awesome episode. I'm really proud of how it turned out. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you so much for listening to this episode of select and start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Jet Set Radio or any other game we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also follow me on Twitter at Danny Vegito and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. The art for this show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. And you can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Trevor's. All right. I think that's it. Rock that shit, homie. Doctor approved, everybody.